welcome to Calvary Castle Rock. And uh, I think we need a bigger church. And so uh, this is wonderful what the Lord is doing here. Um, for those of you who are new, we are building a bigger church. <laughs> and it's, uh, it's there off of Fifth and Woodlands. I encourage you to go by and take a look at it, pray over it. Don't walk on it. It says no trespassing. We don't want any injuries and things like that, but they're, they're pouring footings right now for the base of the building. It's kind of uh, exciting to be able to see. I know if you're like me, you go by and you're kind of looking at it and you have all these mounds of dirt. You can't really see what's going on on the other side. And so I've asked the guy several times, could you just move that so we can kind of see? Uh, you know, it's kind of, there's reasons that's there and, you know, so whatever, you know. You know, I'm the pastor. They go, I don't care. All right. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We'll place a Bible in your hand. We're going to be in Exodus chapter one. Very excited about what we get to go over here this morning. A lot of, a lot of, uh, um, uh, little titles that I, I, I get from seminarians and things like that. We'll break it down. Um, these seminarians and, and, uh, you know, brainiacs come up with certain titles for things that I think of simpler ways to say it. Uh, but I'm excited to be able to get into that here this morning. We're going to begin here with Exodus chapter 1. Got to make sure my handy-dandy laser is working. Good. Going to have some uh, things up there that I think will really bless you. So starting here in Exodus chapter 1, it says, Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man in his household came from Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons for Joseph was in Egypt already. Now, so uh, we showed this last week with the introduction to um, Exodus, is that we ended up in Genesis with these 70 people coming into Egypt. So we begin here with these 70 people in Egypt. And yet it says in the very next verse, it says, and Joseph died, all his brothers, all that generation. So Jacob and his family that have come over, they're all dead. But they had kids. And those kids had kids. And those kids had kids. But that first generation that has come over at this point in the Exodus is now gone. Okay, is now gone. But it says in verse 7, But the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. So we're talking many generations have taken place at this time. Now, at this time that Joseph came over and Jacob came over was a, a time of the Hyksos kings. These are foreign invaders from Canaan who ruled Egypt in the 16th and 17th dynasty. Kings in Egypt are called pharaohs. Pharaoh, Hebrew word, pero, and it means a great house is what that means. A dynasty means a house of rule. In other words, A series of kings coming from the same family line is what creates this great house or this great dynasty. So if you are the pharaoh, then guess what? Your son will be the next pharaoh. Then your son will be the next pharaoh. That is comes from the same family line. Thus, that's a dynasty. If someone comes along, dethrones you, 
then that begins the next dynasty of kings that will come from you, okay? So here in verse 8 on, we have the 18th dynasty. Well, what comes before the 18th dynasty? The 17th dynasty, the 16th dynasty. And as I've mentioned here, this is the rule of the Hyksos kings, Hyksos is an Egyptian word that means foreign rulers. Hyksos were Semites from the line of Shem, and the Egyptians were Hamites from the line of Ham. These Semitic Hyksos conquered and ruled Egypt and comprised the 16th and 17th dynasty in Egypt. And they welcomed other Semitic people from Canaan. So this is when Joseph comes. This is when Jacob and his families come into the land. It was under that dynasty of the Hyksos kings. So Joseph's rise to power was under the Hyksos rulers. So when Joseph invites his family to Egypt, the Hyksos kings welcomed them, gave them the land in Goshen because they're of the same Semitic stock. Okay? Now, it's interesting because on this next slide up here is Genesis 46, 33. So Joseph tells his family, look, when you come into the land, you're going to meet the Pharaoh. And so I want to make sure that you let him know that you're shepherds. That's your occupation. So he says in verse 33 of Genesis 46, so it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? That you shall say your servants occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now, both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. For every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. That's a key. That's a hint of who this Pharaoh is, okay? So Egyptians do not like to handle sheep. They don't like those who handle sheep themselves. They're an abomination to them. So now his brothers and his father are now before Pharaoh. And in chapter 47, verse 5, it says, Then Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And... If you know any competent men among them, then make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. That's what Pharaoh says. So if Pharaoh has sheep and goats and has his own livestock, what does that tell you? He's not Egyptian. He's not Egyptian. So he's part of this Hyksos kings at that time. So we see this now. Now we get to verse 8, and it says, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Not favorable to Joseph. Not favorable to his people. Why? Because he's an Egyptian. That's why. And this begins the new dynasty, the 18th dynasty in Egypt. Now we're going to show you a list of of kings here, nine kings of the 18th dynasty when they ruled during the period of the exodus of where we are right now. And so we're going to see this. It's not N9. I don't know who that king is. 
but obviously a rebellious child. Go take care of that. Um, but we're going to show, we're going to show here this list of kings up here that should trump this rebellious child. Lord, there we go. Here we go. Right here. All right. So here are the nine kings during the time of the Exodus that we have in front of us here. Okay. You're, this is the beginning of the 18th dynasty of these different pharaohs that are Egyptian. So the first one is Pharaoh Akmos. Okay. He reigned from 1570 BC to 1546 BC. He had one son. He had one daughter. Okay. When he died, his son, Pharaoh Amenhotep, the first reigned from 1546 to 1426 BC, but he died without children. Well, that's a short dynasty, you know, but his father had a daughter. He had a sister who married a man by the name of Thutmose. So Thutmose, the first is the son-in-law to Akmos, the first pharaoh of the 18th dynasty. Thutmose was married twice, produced a daughter from his first marriage, a son by his second marriage. The daughter of his first marriage is called Hutshepsut. Say that six times. Hutshepsut. Hutshepsut. I'm trying to get it down because I I guarantee I'm going to mispronounce it at least four more times as we go through this. The daughter of his first marriage is called Hutshetsup, and the son of his second marriage, he was called Thutmose II. Now, this is important because uh, Hushetsup is becomes queen. She is the one who pulls Moses out of the river. That's why she's important. That's why I should figure out how to say her name. Um, so... When Thutmose I dies, then it is Pharaoh Thutmose II that technically reigns, you know, from 1512 BC to 1504 BC, but he is the half-brother of Hatshepsut, okay? So um, when he dies, then it is Pharaoh Thutmose III technically reigns from 1504 BC to 1447 BC. But Thutmose III was so young when his father Thutmose II died, his aunt reigns in his place. That is Hatshepsut, okay, that does this. And so she controls the throne. She is the queen of Egypt. She also has a daughter but she also is the one that draws Moses out of the water, or one of the servant girls does, and brings it to her. And she is the one that raises Moses, okay? She is the one that raises Moses. So as, but she also had a daughter and made Thutmose III marry her daughter. As Thutmose III grew, so did his hatred towards his aunt, which is Hatshepsut. So when she dies in 1483, Thutmose III tries to erase her memory from history of the Egyptians. He destroys all of her statutes that were made of her. All recordings of her in stone were smeared over with plaster in order to hide the fact that she ever existed. Thutmose III also tried to kill and destroy anyone connected to her. 
This is why when Moses kills an Egyptian, Thutmose III finally has something against Moses. Moses knows it. That's why he flees. During this time, Thutmose III continues to make raids into Canaan, putting more of Canaan under his control. Then you have Pharaoh Amenhotep II. He reigned from 1447 BC to 1425 BC. He is the son of Thutmose III, and he too makes raids into Canaan. He is the one that Moses comes to and says, let my people go. Ten plagues happen under him. It was under this Pharaoh that the exodus occurred. Then you have the seventh Pharaoh, Thutmus IV, reigned from 1425 B.C. to 1417 B.C. Thutmose IV is the second son of Amenhotep II. What happened to the first son? He died in the first plague, or in the tenth plague, when the firstborn of Pharaoh died. So this is the second son that takes over at this time. This would also be the time that, um, so uh, he's the rightful heir, and, and, and because of his brother dying, he's the guy at this point. It's interesting that it's probably during that point in time, and the next king is when Joshua goes in to the promised land. It's during uh, Thutmose IV that you have the 40 year of wandering in the wilderness, okay? And it's in the next pharaoh, the eighth pharaoh, Amenhotep III, that reigns from 1417 BC to 1379 BC. He's a very weak king and begins to lose control of Canaan and decline continues with the next and last pharaoh of this dynasty. This is probably when Joshua starts to come into the land to conquer the land. And then you have Amenhotep IV, reigned from 1379 B.C. to 1331 B.C. He later changed his name to Akhenaton, meaning the sun disk, because he tried to change Egypt's religion towards monotheism, the worship of only one god, and that god being the sun disk. Okay, and so he renamed himself Akhenaton. Sounds like one of the Transformers, actually. <laughs> I am Akhenaton. And, you know, so. Um, civil war broke out during his time. And because of this civil war, they totally lost control of Canaan at that point. Um, and so this is the time period of the beginning of the book of Judges happens during his reign. Okay. So knowing that brief little history lesson that you have as we're going through uh, the book of Exodus, we'll be talking about these different kings uh, along the line, okay? But now you have the outline of, of, of the actual history of when they reigned. Now, I want you to go to Exodus chapter 2, verse 10. I want you to look here. In verse 10, it says, And the child grew, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, meaning the gal that fished Pharaoh, uh, fished Pharaoh, fish Moses out of the Nile there. It says she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter. That would be Hatshepsut. And he became her son. Never do we read that Moses becomes the son of any Pharaoh. He's only the son 
a Pharaoh's daughter, okay, who Shepset, who is the queen of Egypt, okay? So she called his name Moses. Why? Because I drew him out of the water. Okay. Well, what does Moses mean? It means to be drawn out is what it means. It means to be drawn out. That's where Moses comes from. In the Egyptian, it's pronounced Mosher, okay? Who Shepset is the one who names Moses this, drawn out is what that means, and drawn out of the water, obviously. Um, the interesting thing is, is that there are some scholars that believe that Moses' name, Egyptian name, was probably Har Mosher, because Har means Nile, drawn out of the Nile, Okay. But because Moses is one that writes this, okay, Moses would have dropped the very first part of his name because the Egyptians uh, would uh, worship the false god of the Nile, and he wouldn't want a false deity attached to his name. Possibly over 200 gods is what Egypt worshipped, okay? Over 200, and, and the Nile was one of the gods, and so he is probably named uh, Har Mosher, is what they would say. Yet we do know something about the 18th dynasty of kings. Understand that that name given to him would probably also have some attachment to these dynasty of kings, and in this case, Queen Hatshepsut. I'm just, I just want to let you know, I'm just so excited that I pronounced the name correctly so far. All right. I really struggled last night. Anyway, Moses means drawn out, received out. First part of the name speaks of the Egyptian god. You have Achmos, Ah, Egyptian moon god, means out of the moon. You have Thut or Thoth, for Thutmos is Egyptian god of wisdom. So out of wisdom. So their names are attached to these false deities in which they worship. But the actual dynastic name is Mos. And that's why we have Moses drawn out. And since he was drawn out of the Nile, we'll attach the false deity Nile to his name. Moses is not... And a Hebrew name, it's an Egyptian name. It means drawn out, okay? And Moshe is, is how you say drawn out in, in Hebrew, and so that's his Hebrew name. Very interesting how that's connected with this dynasty, his name. Very interesting. So this house of kings were Egyptian. They did not favor the Semitic people, these Hebrews, so they're going to treat them poorly, So in verse 9 of Exodus 1, it says, And he said to his people, Look, the people, the children of Israel, are more and mightier than we. Well, guess what? As Achmos came and and kicked out the Hyksos kings, as they got weaker and weaker and the Egyptians got stronger and stronger, he ended up running out the Hyksos kings with a lot of the Semi-people back into the land of Canaan. Okay? But some of the Semites were left behind. And obviously, uh, Jacob and his family and his generation stayed behind there in Goshen because that's where God told them to go and hadn't told them to leave. So they stayed there. So when Achmos first comes into power here, 
he's looking and he's just seeing this Semitic group and he says they're getting bigger and bigger. Well, how long does it take for him to realize, hey, they're getting bigger and bigger? And I would submit to you that at this point, that he's another king that came, but it could have been the, the next two or three kings that came up generation after generation. They're watching the Hebrew people grow because it's going to take a decade or two before you notice, hey, they're getting bigger and bigger as a people. They're being very prolific. So the reason why I say this is because we don't know exactly which king implemented these hardships that we're about to read right now. Okay, it, it, it could have been, it could have definitely been Akmos. It could have been Amenhotep the first. It could be Thutmose the first. It could be Thutmose the second. Okay, we don't know exactly which king implemented this rigorous activity that they're about to put down on the people. And he says, look at them. We're here to afflict them. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, verse 10, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war, that they also should join our enemies, fight against us, and so go up out of the land. Sin is stupid. Because it would seem to me, if you have this large people group that can maybe join up with your enemies, I would be nice to this people group. And I would get them freedoms and and liberties and, you know, things like that. In order for when the enemy comes, hey, you guys should, you know, go with us. And they could say, well, why? Well, we'll give you liberty. We'll give you freedom. You can worship any God you want. Well, we already have that, you know. Just kind of makes sense. But if you treat them poorly and the enemy sends a spy and says, hey, we're about to attack. Will you join us? Of course we will. Because our lives under them is horrible. But sin is stupid. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramesses. So this king tries to work them so hard that they would be too tired to have relationships with their wives, therefore decreased the birth rate. But as Dr. Arnold Fruchtenbaum says, they underestimated Jewish stamina. Thus, the greater the affliction, the greater the multiplication of the Jewish people. I love that. That is so great. And so verse 12 says, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiply and grew, the stronger they became. And then they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage in mortar and brick and all manners of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So in verse 12, when it says, the more they afflicted them, the more they multiply and grew. Well, that's only going to be seen over time. So again, I would, I would submit to you at least a decade went by before they said, this is not working. Okay. It couldn't have been just in six months, and now, well, let's now do this. It had to be a, 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 a bit of time had to go by in order for them to be able to see that, okay? And so, again, this might be the next king that started to implement this. We don't know. But they started to afflict them with great burdens, with rigor. The word rigor in the Hebrew means harshness, severity, cruelty. From the root word meaning to crush or break apart is what that means. Then, 
we have here in verse 19. Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. Okay, again, could be a different king. They're seeing that this isn't working. How would they see that it would take another decade? Now we'll make it even more severe. Okay, it's going to take time to find out if this is working. So again, this could be another king at this point that implements this next area. All right. So it says in verse 15, then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives of whom the name of one was Shipra, the name of other Pua. And he said, when you do the duties of the midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it is a son, then you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not, you should have that underlined, did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. This is the first example that we have of civil disobedience. First time of rebellion. And who leads it? A couple women. No. Um, And so (laughs) I'm going to build you up here in a moment. Just say, just had a zing you right there. Um, so notice who it is. Two female midwives say, no, we're not going to do this. Why? Next verse it says here, um, but the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but saved the male children alive. Why the civil disobedience? Courage. Courage to want to do what God says above what anybody else says? Why? Because they feared God. They respected God. They loved God. And we're going to obey God over man. It's awesome. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and saved the male children alive? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women for they're lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. That's a lie. That's a lie. We'll get into that here in a moment. But the Hebrew midwives feared God. Shipra, the name here, Shifra, it means beauty or brightness. Pua means splendor or glitter or brilliance. Nobody names their kid Pua anymore. <laughs> don't, I, I don't quite get that. It means splendor, glitter, or brilliance. Both certainly shined for God. And look what their obedience brought. Therefore, God dwelt well with the midwives. And they multiplied, people multiplied and grew very mighty. And so it was because the midwives feared God, he provided households for them. God rewarded them for their civil disobedience. Because I believe it has a lot to do with the motivation of the heart. Why are you disobeying the government? Because of what you said, God. Not because of my political platform. Why civil? Because God said this. Then I think you're on very, very solid footing. Why civil debate? Well, because I believed in it. Okay, can you back that up with the word of God? Well, no. I'm not so sure you're on very good footing there. Civil disobedience, because of what the word of God says. That's why. He provided households for them. This was God's blessing On the midwives, he enabled them to have children of their own. Usually midwives held their occupation because they had no children of their own. 
These Hebrew women knew it was better for them to obey God, even if it meant losing their own lives. And God does not forget their faithfulness and provides families of their own. Hebrews 6.10 says, For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. God does not forget your labor of love. When you stand up for righteousness and you choose to do what God says above what anybody else says, he's not going to forget that. It might not end up favorably for you. God might not reward you in this world. It might be in the world to come. It might be in the kingdom to come when he hands out that reward for you to standing faithfully over what the word of God says. He does not forget any labor of love that we have towards his name. He will not forget that. In 1 Samuel 2.30 uh, it says, but now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor. And those who despise, despise me shall be lightly esteemed. God honors those who honors him. And so somewhere down the road, as you continue to honor God, he will honor you. Again, might be in this world, it might be in the kingdom come, but he will honor you. He has not forgotten Here with the Hebrew midwives, we see the very first case of civil disobedience in the Bible. Francis Schaeffer said this in his Christian manifesto. I love this picture of him. Um, If you've never read anything about Francis Schaeffer, you kind of have to pray ahead of time, Lord, help me understand what he's about to say. You know, some things are very solid. Other things are so heady that you have to go back, you know, but he's amazing man of God has now gone to be with the Lord. But he said this, if Christians can never practice civil disobedience, then the state has become the object of worship. Who do you worship, God or the government? I worship God. And so long if the government is is going to allow for me to continue to worship God, do what God has said to do, then I don't have a problem with government. But the moment the government steps in and says, I can or cannot do certain things that God has said to do or not do, then we have a problem. Then we have a problem. Bible clearly teaches at times believers must disobey civil laws in order to obey God's higher laws. I'm in um, Daniel right now in my own personal devotion with the Lord. And so this last week I read Daniel chapter three when Nebuchadnezzar, you know, um, uh, builds this big image to be worshipped, and and so Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego said absolutely not, you know, and so they're thrown into the fiery furnace. And what happens when they're thrown in the fiery furnace? Jesus shows up. Someone walking around like the Son of God, and you know what? When you step out to do what's right and you get persecuted for it, you know who shows up and strengthens you during that time? The Lord does. The Lord does. So we have the Hebrew wives here. They lie, and God rewards them for them. Dr. Fruchtenbaum says that Pharaoh had lost the right to know the truth. Interesting. I mean, I I can look at that and say, okay, yeah, I could kind of draw that conclusion, but what about my own life? When do I conclude that someone has lost the right to know the truth? This is a real slippery slope, and I, I, I personally would not go down this way okay? Um, God will make it known, you know, those those times of what to say, but I I don't ever want to be a person that says, well, the reason why I lied to the guy is because he doesn't deserve to know the truth. God's done with him. Wow. I, I wouldn't go down that road. 
Okay. I think we can look back in history after things are done, when we have all the information and we can maybe come to that conclusion as we go through God's word. Uh, but that is not something I would use going forward. Okay. Now, this is very interesting. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 1, it says this. Now, the Lord said to Samuel, so God's speaking to Samuel here. How long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I've rejected him from reigning over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go. I'm sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, which would be in Bethlehem, okay? For I provided myself a king among his sons. Samuel says, how can I go? If Saul hears about it, he will kill me. Why doesn't God at this point say, oh, you just need to have faith? You know what God does? He tells him to lie. What? And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice the Lord. And it might be true he'll do that, but that's not the reason why he's going. Isn't that nuts? Isn't that crazy? Don't you hate it when someone brings that to you and go, what is that all about? And you go, I I don't know. Which, by the way, is okay to say. I I don't know yet. I don't don't know everything that's going on here. I don't know exactly what what is happening here. But Dr. Arnold would also say that Saul had lost the right to know. To know the truth. So when do you know when someone has lost the right to know the truth? Here's how I think. Here's an example. Knock, knock. The Nazis? Are you holding Jews in the basement? What do you answer? Liar face. That is if you are hiding Jews. He just lied. Why? Because you have a greater obligation to protect innocent life than you do to tell the truth. That is a biblical principle that I can show time and time again in God's word. For seminarians, those great minds that have shown me great things like Norman Geisler has, he calls this graded absolutism. What? Graded certain grades. Okay, why not levels? I understand levels graded. One's graded higher than the other. Absolutisms. You mean absolutes? Yes. God has certain absolutes and they are at certain levels and are different grades and one is a higher absolute than the other, but they're still absolutes. Okay. Graded absolutism. That when you're in conflict over two laws or virtues, your obligation is to obey the higher law or virtue or command, and you're exempt from obeying the lower law or virtue or command. Graded absolutism is when you choose a higher absolute over a lower absolute. This is what we have with the midwives. Do they tell the truth? They don't. Because if they did, then they would participate in a greater sin by destroying innocent life or they lie and they protect innocent life. 
upholding innocent life is a greater absolute or virtue of God than to not to lie. That is a lower absolute or virtue of God. And when there's a conflict then you and you cannot do both, then you have to do the higher absolute or virtue. I mean, let's be very clear. God's word makes very clear you are not to lie. We're about, we're here in Exodus. So we're going to get to Mount Sinai and we're going to go over the 20, uh, the 20. <laughs> it's in Exodus 20. Dad's, Dave's adding to the commandments. No, it's in Exodus 20. Okay. And it's the 10 commandments, but it's one of the 10 commandments. Okay. Exodus 20:16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Ephesians 4.25, therefore putting away lying, let each of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. We're not to lie. Proverbs 12.22, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but to those who deal truthfully are his delight. What about Rahab the harlot? I feel bad for Rahab. We always call her Rahab the harlot. You know, always forever known that. What about Rahab? Let's just say that. What about Rahab? Well, in Joshua chapter 2, she is confronted with either telling the truth or to lie. Rahab decides to show mercy and, and lie when all of a sudden, just like the Nazis, okay, the authority there in Jericho comes knocking on her door and says, hey, people have seen these spies come into your house. Do you still have them? Well, in Joshua 2, 3, it says, So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. Then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I do not know where they are or from. Lie. That's a lie. And it happened as the gate was being shut when it was dark that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. It's another lie. They didn't go out. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. That's another lie. Three lies right there. But she had brought them up to the roof, hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in, in order on the roof. Did she sin? Did she apply the principle of biblical law and truth to the situation? It seems to me that God withheld any sort of judgment for her doing that, and instead rewards her for showing mercy to the people of God rather than truth-telling to God's enemies. In spite of her deception, God immortalizes her in the book of Hebrews, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11.31. Nowhere does the Bible condemn her for her actions. As a matter of fact, she's listed in the genealogy of Matthew 1, verse 5, in Jesus' genealogy. Great honors were given to her. Why? God honors those who honor him. It's interesting because I can also say that she honored God. Was she honoring God or trying to save her own skin? Well, later on, we're told she's honoring God because in Joshua 2.11, as she begins to uh, account for the history of how the, the, the Jews had gotten to the place where they are, she says, I know that God has given you the land. I know that he is the one that did that great miracle of opening the Red Sea and destroying Pharaoh's armies. I know that he is the one that has given you the land as you've defeated two of the great kings of the Amorites. She is professing, I know that your God is doing this. That brings honor to God. And so she says, for the Lord, your God, he is the God in heaven above and on earth beneath. She honors God. She knows their God is the true God. 
And so she begins at that point to say, I want to be on God's team. I want to do what God wants me to do. So she honors God, and through taking the higher absolute virtue of law of preserving innocent life, God honors her for it. Now, something I learned this week, which to me, I just always love it, learning new things, you know. And it is with Norman Geisler. And he goes on to explain this in even a, a greater capacity that we don't have time for here this morning. But one of the things I want to point out is that he brought me to Matthew 12. So I want you to go to Matthew 12. And he would say Matthew 12 proves graded absolutism. And so Matthew chapter 12, we have this encounter in verse 1. And at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry, and began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. Jesus never defends that. He doesn't say, nuh-uh, that's one of your man-made traditions, which it was. Okay, they had over 1,500 laws, man-made traditions, what you can and cannot do on the Sabbath, okay? One of them was if, you know, if, uh, uh, if, if one of your beasts of burden fell into a pit, you can go and, and get them out of the pit. But if a wall falls on a person, I don't know if they had that issue back then. <laughs> but if a wall falls on a person, you can only remove enough of the rubble to find out if he or she is okay. And if it doesn't look like they're going to die from it, then you let them be until the Sabbath is over. John, you okay? Yeah, I think so. Okay, we'll be back in you know about eight hours. How ridiculous, <laughs> says John, all right? I don't know why I had John in mind, but whatever. Um, and it, how ridiculous that is. Wait, I, I can't glean from the wheat field just to curb my appetite on, on the Sabbath? Really? Why? The Sabbath is so you stop your normal work and then you reflect on the goodness of God for the last six days and, and everything he has provided for you. And it's a time of worship. You come together in the synagogue, you praise and give worship to God. We dwell upon what God has done. It's a day of rest to reflect upon God. In Mark's account, Jesus says, the this, this Sabbath, that man was not created for the Sabbath, but the Sabbath was created for man. What does that mean? Sabbath is supposed to be good for man. Supposed to be good for man. Well, here, Jesus doesn't even get into it here with the fact that that's a stupid law and that was never the way it was supposed to be to begin with. That was your own man-made tradition. That is not what it meant. He, he doesn't even go off in that way. He just kind of gives it to him. Okay, let's, let's kind of say that is the law. He just kind of gives into it. He says this. He says to them, verse 3, Have you not read 
what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him. How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Jesus reminds the leaders that David and his companions had violated God's law concerning eating the bread of presence or the bread, the showbread. Jesus indicates, according to the conversation, that they were innocent, without guilt. They're blameless for this. In this particular case of hunger, Jesus informs the religious leaders here that mercy takes precedent over the law. There was a higher need. David and his men had been out, and they they had been uh, uh, running away from Saul. They'd been doing all sorts of other things. They were hungry. They were there. And what happens? The priests look at them, and they say, you know what? You are hungry. But that bread was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. That was the law. But the priests gave David and his men the bread. Why? Because need and mercy trumps the law. That's why. That's why. And so the priest gave it to David his men. Now, in verse 5, it says, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What does that mean? It means that the priests go to the temple, or in the time of David, would go to the sanctuary, okay? And they would kindle fires. They would uh, slaughter and prepare animals. They would lift them up on the altar and a host of other things. We read in Numbers 28, verse 9, that on the Sabbath day, two lambs in the first year without blemish, two tenths of an ephah, fine flour is grain, offering mixed with oil and with its drink offering. This is the burnt offering for every Sabbath besides the regular burnt offering with its drink offering. So every day you do the regular burnt offering and the drink offering, but on the Sabbath you double it. So it's double work on the Sabbath for the temple priests, for the priests in the sanctuary. Why can we not work, but they can? Because again... This, this has nothing to do that the law has to be obeyed above necessity, okay? And he says, and yet those priests are blameless. Then look what he says in verse 6. Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. That'd be Jesus talking to him. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy not sacrifice or not law you would have not condemned the guiltless for the son of man is lord even on the sabbath here jesus says he desires mercy not sacrifice or ritual or adherence to the law at the cost of someone suffering sabbath is made for man not man for this institution These things are supposed to be good. And yet, if they end up being misery for someone, then we're misapplying the law, is what he's saying here. And look what Jesus does and says in the following verses here. In verse 9, now when he had departed from there, still the Sabbath, he went into their synagogue on the Sabbath, and behold, there was a man who had a withered hand, and they asked him, saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? for this reason, that they might accuse him. The Sabbath is supposed to be good for man. 
how is it good for this man for him to still have his withered hand for the rest of the Sabbath? How is that good for him? Jesus goes on and says to them, what man is there among you has one sheep that falls into the pit on the Sabbath will not lay hold of it and lift it out? Like I said before, they had these laws. Okay. How much more value is this man than a sheep? Animals are people too. No, they're not. (laughs) Mankind is more valuable. Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is supposed to be good. How could you not heal if you have that opportunity? And he said to them, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out and was stored as whole as the other. And the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might destroy him. Man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath's made for man. Sabbath's supposed to be good for man. Interesting, in Deuteronomy 6, verse 24, the Lord God commanded us to observe all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God for our good always, not sometimes. The law is good always, not sometimes. That he might preserve us alive as it is this day. Deuteronomy 10.13. And to keep the commandments of the Lord and his statues, which I command you today for your good. Every law God ever gave, every rule God ever gave, any sort of uh, commandment that God gave is always been for the benefit of man. Always. So the moment you put into practice or place a law, a commandment, and it doesn't end up being for the good of the individual, then you're misapplying that command or that law. Jesus desires mercy over sacrifice, the law, the command. He he desires mercy. And if that mercy is going to help benefit that individual, then that's the direction that you go. Graded absolutism. Interesting. Very, very interesting. Now, to explain the concept of graded absolutism, again, the biblical problem, our responsibility you know, uh, uh, to choose when there, is, when there is conflict. When it comes to civil disobedience, our responsibility to obey the government and our responsibility is to obey God. When those come crashing together, what do you do? Paul says, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities for there's no authority except that which God has established. When you read Romans 13, government is there for mankind. Government was created for mankind. That's why it says if you do right, you don't have to fear the government. Because the government is there to do what? Judge evil. The government was created there, and God created that in Genesis chapter 9, and we went over that. He begins to form what government is supposed to do. All right? Government comes from God. Now, for what reason? For our good. It's supposed to be good for us. This is the law of God. Everyone must submit to government, but there are no, but are there no exceptions to this absolute? There definitely are. We already saw Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
said, no, we're not going to do that. And they were thrown in the fiery furnace. We also have the example of Peter and John being called forth. They have this dilemma. They're preaching the name of Jesus. Sanhedrin, who's the governing authority in their area, says, you're not to do this anymore. <laughs> they faced a dilemma. Do we obey God and, and preach Jesus or we don't, do we not? Acts chapter 5, verse 28 saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and tend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than man. Jesus, in Matthew 16, 18, he said this, I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. My church. That's the first time the word church is used in the New Testament. It is the Greek word uh, ekklesia, and it means a gathering of citizens called out of their homes into the public place for worship. In, in Hebrews 10, 24, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembly of ourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. We have a mandate by God himself to assemble and worship. It is his church. And when the government says you cannot meet, we're now at a crossroads. I'm supposed to obey my governing authority, but I'm also told that I'm supposed to assemble with other believers to bring God glory and that I'm not to forsake the assembly of the brethren. What do you do? Well, I hate to say it, 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 it took about 12 weeks. I think it was 10 and the 11th week we met, okay? But it wasn't until we started to meet that all of a sudden I started to see this for what it was and it was kind of like, okay, never again. This church will not close its doors ever again. Ever again. Not because I hate the government or this or that or trying to be prideful for one reason only. I fear God more than man. And so that is our mandate. But Dave, I'm sick or I'm afraid I might get sick. Okay. But those who aren't sick and are feeling impressed by God to meet, we're going to meet. Dave, people could get sick and die. Yeah, they did during the Black Plague too, when the ministers didn't close the doors and continue to minister to those who were dying. And many of those ministers got the plague and died. Don't you think when they arrived in heaven, they heard the words, well done, good and faithful servant, enter in the joy of the Lord? I wonder how many people came to Christ as those ministers kept their doors open and they were on their deathbeds and ministers came and ministered to them, told them about the good news of Jesus Christ and they received the Lord. I wonder how many people during that plague came to know Christ before they died because God's people understood it was more important to advance the kingdom of God than it was to stay safe behind closed doors. Civil disobedience. What about marriage? What about marriage? It is not good that man should be alone. Marriage was created for man, for his, her own good. What about divorce? Well, you can only be divorced if there's sexual immorality. That's the only reason. Okay, what about the spouse that's being abused and feared for their life and they're living hell on earth in that marriage. Well, has the other spouse committed adultery? No, then they have to stay in it. Really? 
You're now using the law. Now you're using those words for the good of that person. I believe that Jesus desires mercy over sacrifice. And every situation is different. Why did, God, why did Moses allow for divorce? Hardness of heart. Who's hardness? Of the person who's being the abuser. Because of that hardness of heart, that's why you should be able to get a divorce right there. And every situation is different. Don't get, get me wrong. Just because one person says, well, they're abusing me. I should be able to get out of this. It's hell on earth. And then you talk to everybody around and go, uh, that spouse has looked at their spouse sideways a couple times. Now they want out. Okay, well, here's the thing. You, you can fool me. You can't fool God. You're married to someone. They're living a, a, a double life. You don't even know about it. And then they, they, they get caught murdering someone. And they go to jail for the rest of their life. Yeah, you need to be married to them because they didn't commit infidelity. They didn't have adulterous affair. They didn't have sex with someone else. So even though they're a murderer, yeah, you still need to be married to them because, you know, you're to be that light and that witness to them that maybe they will turn around and that is your cross to bear. I don't agree with that. I believe in mercy. And sometimes that mercy comes in and say, this isn't what I made marriage to be all about, you know, but it represents Christ in the church. Uh, That marriage does not. Again, mercy. Yeah, we have, these, we have these laws. We know what it is that God has called us to do. And so long as we apply that, we can see the good that that is supposed to be for that person and for this, this situation and stuff like that. But when we're, 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 we're handing that down and it isn't good for that person, where's the mercy? Graded absolutism. It's just a very, very interesting concept as, as we go through the word of God. Jesus says it's always lawful to do good. Seems to me it's always good to save innocent life. And Jesus illustrates his principle to do good, to save life. With the example here of, uh, of the midwives as well as David and the bread of presence. And, and so law gave way to mercy. Let's pray.